0: This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the trans panic. I told you guys that June I was going to do some Pride Month-focused episodes, and today we are going to break into some of the uh, really unfortunate transphobic controversies that have been popping up on social media and the consequences that they have for LGBTQ plus people in a broader sense. For some kind of background information, there are currently 491 anti-LGBTQ bills in state legislatures across the U.S., many of which are focused on trans people and specifically on trans youth. These bills include things like banning kids from access to gender-affirming care, banning people from accessing bathrooms that are consistent with their gender identity, banning trans people from sports teams, etc., etc. And the discourse around gender identity and transgender people has been very reminiscent of the satanic panic which is why i refer to this as the trans panic it's also really similar to the way in which qAnon talks about like this global cabal of pedophiles there's like these assumptions that all trans people are pedophiles or grooming kids or some sort of like nefarious motivation If you're not familiar with QAnon or the Satanic Panic, I do cover them in my episodes on Gerald's Game and my multiple episodes on Conspiracy Theory, so you can listen to those for more background. But for the purpose of this episode, all you need to know is that there was a time in this country not very long ago where a kind of mass hysteria went throughout the nation where people started to believe that ritual satanic sexual abuse was happening to children in places like preschools or community centers, and it ruined a lot of people's lives. And the same narratives are coming up around trans people and around drag queens. Now, I'm not talking about drag queens in this episode because performing drag is very different than identifying as trans, non-binary, or gender non-conforming. But the language around both communities has been very similar from the right wing. Lots of accusations of grooming children, of being pedophiles, and of just like the existence of a trans person somehow being dangerous to children. And there's also a lot of claims in these very transphobic or anti-trans movements that gender identity issues or non-binary gender identities are some sort of social contagion, and that by simply being exposed to the existence of trans people that more people become trans or get turned trans by the social contagion. This is untrue. I want to debunk this right up top before we even get into the other areas I have to talk about today. It is not that there are people becoming trans. Like, people are born with a gender identity, and it doesn't always match the sex they're assigned at birth, but people are typically born with a pretty consistent gender identity. In fact, gender identity is one of the more stable aspects of identity, and Children are pretty secure or know what their identity is very young. The difference is that oftentimes the sex assigned to them at birth by a doctor does not match with that internal sense of what their gender is. And we only have two sexes that can be assigned. Well, technically three. There's male, female, and intersex. But intersex is often not used and doctors will just assign male or female. But there's only (laughs) two options there. And there are a myriad more of gender identities. Um, And so this idea that all of of a sudden, you know, in the 2020s, there's all these trans people and, and people are getting, like, convinced to become trans, that's just not true. The reality is, is that we're just more aware that people exist, that trans people exist. And there's more freedom, although there is this backlash, there is more freedom to come out as different gender identities and to express gender in more fluid or creative ways one of the best examples that i've seen to explain this why it's not that people are just becoming trans all of a sudden but it's that people are actually being able to talk about their identities openly without having fear of like being murdered in the street like maybe they were in the past is a a graph that charts how people identified as left-handed and if you just google this you'll find it but basically The graph shows how many, like, what percentage of the population in the U.S. was left-handed from, like, the 1900s to present day. And for uh, quite a bit of time, the percentage is very low. It hovers around, like, uh, I don't know, like, 4 let's say it hovers around, like, 4%. And then you see this kind of, like, uptick in around, like, the 1950s, and it, like, shoots up all the way to, like, 20% and then eventually plateaus, and that's where it is now. Now, that doesn't mean that in the 1950s, all of a sudden, people started becoming left-handed and they were exposed to left-handedness, and so now they are left-handed. What happened was there was a massive shift in the education system, and children were no longer forced to be right-handed, right? I'm sure some of you out there either lived through this, or you have parents or grandparents who lived through this, but you'd get your hand whacked by a ruler if you wrote with your left hand, because left-handed people or the left side of the body was associated with the devil or whatever. And so left-handed people were suppressed. They were not able to be fully left-handed. When that started to phase out of the education system and out of the culture, it wasn't that people spontaneously became left-handed. It was that people who already were left-handed, who were born left-handed, didn't have to suppress who they were. And the numbers don't continue to rise. They, They plateau at about 20%, which is about where we are now with the percentage of people that are left-handed it's a more rare trait so it's you know it's not a, a massive percentage of people in the population but we've we saw a massive in- increase and now we're kind of at the baseline the reality was is all along 20% of the population was left-handed they just weren't able to live that way and the same thing is happening with gender identity there is a baseline amount of people in the population that are trans, gender nonconforming, gender non-binary, you know, et cetera, anything under that umbrella, there's a baseline percentage of that. And we haven't hit that baseline yet because we still don't, there's still so many consequences for coming out as transgender or any other type of gender identity that's not cis. And so there's still a lot of backlash and people aren't doing it. So we haven't hit the plateau yet, which is why it may seem like all of a sudden everywhere you look, people are coming out as different types of gender identities. We just haven't hit the plateau yet. And so I want you to hold that in your mind as we go through this episode that that these ideas that trans people are evil and are trying to convert people into being trans, it just is not true. And I think that as we look back on this time in history, there will be a lot of regret for the way that trans people were treated and I think we will see a very similar kind of like population plateau like we saw with left-handed people. Um, I hope that that time comes sooner rather than later, but I think that's just important to keep in mind as we go through this episode. So, I'm going to talk about three separate areas where anti-trans legislation and trans panic focuses, and we're going to break them down, talk about some examples of how they present in culture and in politics, and then give you some of the things to maybe debunk them or provide alternative perspectives. So, Just a heads up, this might be a long episode, it might be a heavy episode, but I think it's really important to debunk some of these things and at least have some voices out there that are not just the overwhelming cacophony of right-wing voices screaming about how trans people are all pedophiles because that's just not true. So our first topic is women's sports. 22 states in the U.S. have banned trans students from playing sports alongside those who share their identity. This means that trans boys are not allowed to play boys sports and trans women or trans girls are not allowed to play girls sports. These typically tend to be about elementary school, but several of them aim at um, college students as well. Unfortunately, the House, the U.S. House, also tried to pass a bill banning trans people from competing in women's sports, and it banned anyone who was assigned male at birth from participating in any kind of women's sports. Fortunately, although it did pass through the House, it was not passed in the Senate and never reached the president's desk, but that was a bill that was attempted to be passed in the United States Congress. You would think they have a lot, enough going on that they don't need to be worried about regulating sports, but alas, they felt that was important enough to waste time on. Typically, the argument for this type of legislation or these types of uh, discriminatory practices are that Um, Trans women are actually just men who fake transition so that they can dominate in women's sports, which already that is founded in some pretty sweet misogyny that women are not, you know, inherently athletic enough to be able to compete with men or compete with people of other genders that, you know, women's sports has to be protected in this specific way because men can just come in and dominate the sport, the other way is that, like, that's just not true. That's just not what ha- what's happening. And there is actually absolutely no evidence to support that trans women come into women's sports and dominate across the board. You might not have known this, but before transgender women in sports even became an issue, both the NCAA and the Olympics had specific rules around trans women uh, being allowed to compete in sports if they've been on hormone replacement therapy for a certain amount of time. And they require these athletes to undergo testosterone testing to determine which levels they are going to be competing at. And again, this was already happening way before any of these bills or this kind of like national zeitgeist conversation began a few years ago. In fact, this policy has not only existed just because of, you know, trans people, but because of intersex um, people or people born with other types of conditions where they may have extra or unusual combinations of sex chromosomes. For example, there's a syndrome called XYY chromosomes, uh, XYY syndrome, and these are people who are born with two Y chromosomes and one X. Traditionally, we have interpreted XY as being male, so this would be like a super male because there's two Ys. Um, There are also certain genetic conditions where, although the person may be, you know, biologically female, so two X chromosomes, they produce um, more testosterone in their body than the, you know, quote unquote, traditional biological female. Um, There are other chromosomal syndromes where um, you may have two X's and a Y, and so you are technically, like, assigned female at birth but may have some male characteristics. There's things like Klinefelter syndrome, Turner syndrome. We actually have quite a few syndromes that are reliant on people having, like, sex chromosome pairings that are outside the XX and the XY. XX being female, XY being male, traditionally. So sports have been dealing with this for a long time and have had policies in place. And the you know, Olympics don't allow you and, and the NCAA don't allow you to compete in women's sports if you have got undergone some type of hormone replacement therapy and your testosterone is too high. They then would say you have to compete in the men's sports. There are also rules for trans men who are, you know, they have been assigned female at birth and transition to living as a man, and they may be taking testosterone as hormone replacement therapy. There's different rules for them as well, but they're still monitored when they enter into any of these sport arenas. Let's also be really clear that there's a huge difference between competing at the NCAA or the Olympics level and competing at, like, peewee soccer level. (laughs) Like, I don't think anyone needs to be checking hormone levels or genitals at, like, the elementary basketball games. Like the 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 just caliber of competition that the Olympics are is so much different than, you know, like after school sports teams. Like truly, kids can be probably be playing in coed sports teams. Like it it is kind of silly to separate like recreational or even like younger kids by gender or sex. Um, but that's another issue for for me to talk about at a different time. But like the the fact that transphobes treat like, Olympic-level competition and, you know, your, like, second-grader soccer team as the same problem and it's, like, men infiltrating women's sports at these same levels is insane to me. Like, that doesn't even make sense. And so this legislation that they try to pass about women's sports ends up affecting a lot of people in really negative ways and ends up affecting a lot of children because what they're trying to do is use these, like, Olympic athlete or, you know, college athletes as these examples of it, but the legislation ends up usually being so vague or written for, you know, such sweeping generalizations that it ends up with things where like, you know, now girls can't play on like the community center basketball team that they used to go to after school to have something to do after school when their parents are still at work. Right. It it starts to eliminate opportunities like that and ends up in this like weird gender policing where adults are questioning the gender identity of children. The Trans Web's favorite example of quote unquote men trying to dominate women's sports by transitioning is someone named Leah Thomas, who is a trans woman who competes in um, college level swimming. And I think it was last year or 2021, she had won a certain race at the NCAA level, whatever, some sort of championships. I'm not a big sports person, but she had won a a race and um and those in that same competition where where leah thomas won a single race she won her um I think it was like a 50 free or a hundred free anyway she she won one race in that same event there were 18 time records beaten that so Leah Thomas won her race but she didn't set a record in the same event 18 time records were broken by a cisgender woman named Kate Douglas from the University of Virginia She had the fastest times in the 50 free, the 100 butterfly, and the 200 breaststroke in all of U.S. college history. So right there, like that's, I probably don't even need to keep going, but that's like just evidence piece number one, that Leah Thomas, didn't come into this event and completely dominate and no other women were able to beat her. She did win one of her events, but at the same event, athletes in her same ranking who just happened to be cisgender outperformed her and broke records of not just their own times, but of all U.S. college history swimming, like record-breaking event. And all of the conversation that transphobes could have was about Leah Thomas and not the other athletes who were competing. So right there, it's, it's not that trans people are coming in and destroying all the women in the sports team. It's that they're competing. They're competing with their gender identity And there are plenty of women who are cisgender and can outperform a trans person, and there are plenty of trans people that can outperform a cis person. Like, it's not about the gender identity or the hormone replacement therapy or whatever. It's, like, about training and other factors that go into being successful. Overall, Leah Thomas is ranked the 15th fastest college swimmer in the U.S. And before her transition, so she transitioned, I believe, in, like, 2018. Or 2019, before her transition, she was competing in the male college athletes like swimming arena, and she was ranked ninth fastest swimmer in her event when she was competing with men. So, in fact, her rank went down when she transitioned and started competing with women after she had passed the NCAA's like guidelines around being on hormone replacement therapy. I believe she was on. HRT for over a year before she started competing with women. So truly, if you just look at like where her ranking was, she got worse after she transitioned. She got slower. She moved down the list in terms of ranking of fastest swimmers. So this person that transphobes hold up as this example of, oh, look, it's just men taking estrogen so that they can come in and win in an easier competition than if they competed with other men, they're like golden example of it is not even true. Like she, yes, she has won certain things, but that's because she's a good swimmer. She's a good athlete and she's been working her butt off. I read an an interview with her that cited, or an article about her that cited in my sources. She was like, she started swimming when she was like eight years old. And she also has known that she's a woman since she was very young. It wasn't that she, she just didn't have the opportunity to medically transition until she was in college, but she's identified this way her whole life. She's known her identity her whole life. And she's been a swimmer her whole life. So the fact that she's the fifteenth fastest woman swimmer in in the US like college swimming arena is because she's worked her butt off and has been a swimmer her whole life. It's not because she one day decided, Oh, I'm just gonna pretend to be a woman so that I can win. So they're are like golden example right away. Fake news, so false. I'll also just add one thing as my, in my personal experience, I was a swimmer in high school. I I was on the swim team for four years. And when you're around a bunch of women who are swimming for hours a day, every day a week, bodies do weird things. A lot of the girls on the swim team I was on would like stop getting their periods because of the amount of exercise they were doing. Like their their body weight drops to a certain point because although their fat is being converted into muscle, their body weight drops to a certain point where they stop having periods. So like these things that we would say, you know, make them being a woman, things like having a menstrual cycle stop because of the level of competition that they're doing. So should they have started competing with men because they weren't having periods? Like that's how vague some of these bills are that the, you know, high school girls I swam with would not be considered, you know, uh, women in the sports that they competed in. So it's just we, we don't have a great understanding of how bodies work, especially if you're not like a doctor or, you know, someone who's had extensive training in things like anatomy. You're not going to understand how bodies work. And that's how that's the people who are making these legisla- this legislation that tries to say that, oh, it's just men trying to, to win in an easier like ranking or an easier heat. They're Pretending to be trans so they can get in here. It just, first of all, that's not happening. We have no evidence of it. And taking estrogen for two years does a lot of changes to your body. You're not just a man in a skirt (laughs) participating in these, you know, sports teams. Like you are someone who has fully medically transitioned in terms of hormone replacement therapy. So it's total malarkey. It it's it's just totally unproven. And so when you hear someone saying that, you know, they're the reason why they don't like trans people is because of this women's sports thing and we need to protect women in sports, they're lying. They, first of all, don't know anything <laughs> about anything. <laughs> and they're using this as an excuse to justify their transphobia. So hopefully now you have a little bit more information to say you're a liar who lies and you are just transphobic. Here is the truth. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a quick little break before we come back with the next topic. All right, the second topic I'm going to talk about today are bathroom bills. Bathroom bills are, it's just a phrase to kind of encompass any legislation that attempts to regulate which gender identities can go into which types of bathrooms. Ten states in the U.S. currently ban trans people from using a bathroom that is consistent with their gender identity, and just to reiterate what I said earlier, gender identity and sex do not always have to be aligned that there are times when someone may be of assigned a certain sex at birth or they may have certain types of sex characteristics that don't necessarily match our perception of their gender identity but a person's gender identity is stable it is internally understood and people express their gender identity through things like the clothes that they wear so just looking at genitalia alone is not a way to determine someone's gender identity those things are very separate so when these bathroom bills get passed, they often say things like, you can only enter into a, you know, women's bathroom if you have certain types of genitalia, which ends up not just going after trans people, but ends up going after, like, parents of small children or caretakers of people with disabilities who require extra support in the bathroom, who are, you know, like, cross-gender pairs, right? Like, you're male parent can't take a female child into the bathroom with them or vice versa when these bills get passed. So 10 states have these. These were really the battleground of the transphobia fights. They popped off in 2016 in the wake of Trump getting elected and that horrible election. Like this was really when the focus had shifted from anti-gay bills and had really truly shifted over to anti-trans bills. And the bellwether for that was that in 2015, the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was like a constitutional right, essentially, and that really took the wind out of the sails of a lot of the homophobes who were trying to legislate against gay people, and so the attention shifted to trans people and gender identity stuff. So, starting in 2016, we started to see these things popping off. There's still 10 states that have these these bills on the books. Um, According to a survey that was taken in 2016, which was one of the first surveys that really comprehensively looked at what was happening with trans people in the U.S., they found that 60% of trans people avoided public restrooms for the fear of being harassed or assaulted. 12% reported that they had been verbally harassed in a bathroom in the last year. 9% reported they were denied access to a bathroom because of their gender identity. 1% stated that they had been physically assaulted and 1% that they had been sexually assaulted. So these bills are not passed in a vacuum. They're not just things that get put on the books so people can, you know, score political points with their base. These are things that actually end up having consequences in the lives of trans people. And that's not just in people who live in states where these bills are, you know, on the books. Like this is a national conversation that has been happening, and so there are people in every state who have experienced something where they walk into a bathroom that is consistent with their gender identity, someone in that bathroom has decided they know the person's gender identity better than themselves and make makes a big deal out of it and ends up doing something like harassing um, banning or even unfortunately assaulting the trans person and if you thought the bathroom war was over you're wrong it continues to wage on um, in the, the year of our lord 2023 arkansas passed a bill to ban trans people from bathrooms and locker rooms consistent with their gender identity so you see how this loops in the sports thing too where instead of just banning trans people from participating in women's sports, they are banning you from being in the locker room. So how are you supposed to participate in the sports if you can't be in the locker room? In the Arkansas bill, they made being in a bathroom that they think doesn't match your gender identity a misdemeanor, and they made it sexual indecency with a child if a minor is present in the bathroom. So this just further solidifies The narrative that trans people are like pedophiles or groomers or going to sexually abuse your children and so just the presence of them being in the bathroom with a child or someone under the age of 18 means that it's a sex crime and it is not like it's not i'm sure there are people listening to this episode who have children and have children who are a different gender than you and have had to take them to the bathroom it is often much more convenient to take your child into the bathroom that's consistent with your gender identity rather than the child's gender identity because what are we going to do here? We're going to send a two-year-old into the bathroom by themselves or send a five-year-old into the bathroom by themselves? No, you're going to take the child into the bathroom with you so that you can help them and because you're the adult, you get to decide. (laughs) You're probably going to choose the bathroom where you feel more comfortable. I was a nanny for many years and I oftentimes had to take if I was nannying or babysitting a, a little boy and we needed, he needed to go to the bathroom, we were going into the women's bathroom so that I could help him. Like, because I'm not going to walk into the men's bathroom. That's not my favorite place to be. <laughs> but I'm going to take the kid that I'm taking care of into the bathroom with me. And so this could, like, make that situation illegal in the state of Arkansas. So these bills aren't just about, they don't just target trans people. They end up targeting lots of people. And, and again, just sends this message that a trans person just going through their life trying to use the bathroom is somehow committing some sort of like horrible offense against children. The reality is, is trans people are just trying to exist. They're just trying to go through the world and use the same utilities that cis people get to use. And let's be honest, those of us with social anxiety, millennials and younger, right? We go into these bathrooms. We don't want to make contact with everyone. I don't want you to look at me. I don't want you to talk to me. I don't want to have a conversation about how the the paper towels are out or there's not enough soap left. I don't want to chat while we're waiting in line to use the bathroom. I want to get in. I want to get out. Nobody is going in there to do anything creepy. And if somebody is going in there to do something creepy, do you think these like weird laws about trans people is going to stop them? And do you think they're going to go into the bathroom of the opposite gender? No, they're going to go into the place where they're not going to get thrown out. So by legislating trans people as if they were sex offenders you are missing the opportunity to do something about people who are actually sex offenders. And I will just say one thing here in terms of, you know, all all these states that pass these laws. I, I oftentimes present on the topic of gender-affirming care to different groups. And I've had people ask me questions when I talk about, like, you know, let's look at the map of where these states have passed these bills, like the bathroom bills or the sports bills or the gender-affirming care bills. And people will ask me, well, why don't we just tell the trans people who live in those states where it's like illegal to be trans, why don't we just tell them to move? And I typically tend to have two responses to that. The the first response is that that's really an untenable solution. If you live in a state, if you're a trans person who lives in a state that is actively legislating against trans people, odds are high that you already don't have a lot of resources because you're probably getting discriminated against in terms of Work in terms of housing access, benefit access, like it's already not a fun time for you. And that is a big investment to uproot and move your life because of the place you are living. In terms of how far you might have to move, too, if you're a trans person who lives in a state like Florida, you're going to have to move like seven states over because there's quite a cluster in the south there where. All of the states in that surrounding area have these anti-trans bills. So it's it's not just a case of, oh, you need to move a city over or a county over or just cross the state line. Especially in the South, these bills are clustered in such a way that even just crossing state lines still means you're in a place where there is active legislation banning your gender identity or your access to public spaces or health care. Oftentimes, the states that don't have anti-trans legislation, like beautiful state of California where I live, those states are expensive. It's, it's. There's a reason why people live in places like Alabama, even though they have no civil rights for a lot of groups, right? Like it's cheap to live there, it's affordable to live there, or people may have lived there for generations and so have like housing or property that has been passed down to them that they couldn't afford to have in another state. Renting in California is already a lot of money. And again, if someone is in these states where... It is the state's mission to determine your existence to be illegal you probably already don't have a lot of resources so just like on a on a resource level that's not a good suggestion the second thing that i respond to that when i get that question is why is it on the trans people to move why is it the responsibility of a trans person to find a place where they can be safe why is it not just that people can be safe being who they are in any place in this country it doesn't solve these problems to just say, well, don't live in Florida. Well, don't live in uh you know, Arkansas or Alabama because they have these types of laws. Just don't live there. Let's move somewhere else. There's like I said, not a whole lot of options and then and when does it stop? And when does it become like, well, most of the US is hostile towards you, so maybe you should just move to Canada or to Mexico or, you know, to leave the country. When does it become a person who lives in this country wants to be an american citizen or live in america they have to keep moving and uprooting their lives because most of the country is hostile toward them when does it stop right and i know it's not just for trans people like there are lots of groups that experience this in the us too and my answer to that is the same right like why should it be on minority groups or marginalized groups to fix things or flee until things get better like it should be on the people who have power to make sure that everybody that lives in their state or their county or their city is protected and has access to basic rights. Basic rights including just being able to walk into a bathroom when you're out in public, right? Like just or or when you're at school being able to go to the bathroom and be comfortable because of who you are and not having people wondering what genitals you have or if you're a sexual creep Or all the horrible things that get, like, thrown at trans people. Like, people should just be allowed to go out and use the bathroom or play sports or do whatever they want to do, right? Isn't that kind of the principle that the U.S. is founded on? I don't know. Maybe I'm not a constitutional scholar. (laughs) Yeah, so kind of in conclusion in terms of this topic, bathroom bills are not as prevalent as some of the other bills. Like, it's only 10 states. There was quite a big backlash in 2016 when North Carolina tried to pass um, their bathroom bill and end up being big economic consequences for the state. So a lot of states kind of back down on that. But I think with us seeing Arkansas passing this bill in this year, it starting to show that it, this is another way that's ramping back up a way that legislatures are specifically targeting trans people. And it ends up having consequences for all of us. All right. We're going to take another quick break before hitting our last topic. All right. Final topic. Gender affirming care. Now, before I talk about what the states are doing that is so horrible about gender affirming care, I just want to define what it is. Gender affirming care, in the broadest sense, is any type of health care, including mental health care, that affirms and matches the gender identity of the person receiving it. To my cisgender listeners, you are receiving gender affirming care pretty much every time you go to the doctor. If you identify as a cisgender woman, which means you're sex assigned at birth, being a female matches with your gender identity of being a woman, you probably go to something like an OBGYN or maybe your primary care doctor handles that, but you go to a doctor who takes care of your reproductive health and refers to you as your gender, which would be woman, and provides you with the care based on your gender identity. And that's gender affirming care. So I I always come back to this because a lot of times when gender-affirming care gets talked about, it gets talked about in the context of only things like hormones or surgeries based on helping people achieve uh, you know, a body that matches their gender identity. But gender-affirming care is all the way down to small things like having your right name in your chart and your correct pronouns in your chart, having access to care that is for maybe the reproductive organs that you have while also affirming what your actual gender identity is. So, like, gender-affirming OPGYNs will treat trans men who might still have a uterus or other, you know, quote-unquote female repro- sexual reproductive organs, but they will not refer to trans men as women. They will refer to trans men as men and their proper name and their proper pronouns. That's gender-affirming care. Because you still need access to care for your uterus if you have one, right? Those of us uterus havers know they require quite a few tune-ups and some, you know, somebody keeping an eye on them. But the gender-affirming part is that you're not going to be talked to like you're a woman just because you have a uterus, right? Who, What your gender identity is and who you are is going to be affirmed in that, in, affirmed in that setting and by that doctor. Same with mental health care, right? Gender-affirming care, again, it can be things like just having your therapist use your correct name and your correct pronouns, it also includes like not pushing toward conversion therapy to convert back to being cisgender because that's not a thing and that doesn't happen, right? Gender-affirming care refers to having your gender identity be affirmed, acknowledged, and, and celebrated. Receiving gender-affirming mental health care does not mean that every conversation will be about Gender. It means that you will be respected for what your gender identity is. Providing mental health services to a trans client may require me to talk about gender identity when it's necessary, but it also means that I don't assume every conversation is going to be about gender and about the person being distressed about their gender identity. Most trans people actually don't meet criteria for gender dysphoria, which is a mental health condition based on the distress around not being able to truly live into one's gender identity. There are trans people that are not fully out, that are not fully transitioned, that don't meet the criteria for gender dysphoria. So as a mental health provider, I don't need to have every conversation be about, oh, you must be so upset because you're trans, right? (laughs) That's not gender-affirming care. Gender-affirming care is seeing people for who they are, all aspects of their identity, and providing them appropriate care. And for some people, that may mean there are lots of conversations around things like transitioning or... Uh, You know, acquiring legal documents that reflect their their proper name, and for some people, it means just having normal, regular therapy, right, and being called what they're supposed to be called, and having access to care that cisgender people get without having certain labels put on them. So, gender affirming care is a, a big umbrella, but what I'm talking about in terms of these bills is typically. What is banned are things like puberty blockers, hormone replacement therapy, and certain types of surgery. The kind of progression of access to medical transition usually goes puberty blocker to hormone therapy to potentially surgeries if that's what the person is interested in. Puberty blockers are typically given to children who are prepubescent or before puberty. It doesn't do anything to your hormones. What it does is it blocks the kind of pre-hormone signal that comes from your brain I'm not going to teach you guys too much brain science today, but basically there is a part of our brain that releases something called gonadotropic endorphins, and then those trigger the production of estrogen or testosterone, depending on if you have uh, ovaries or testes. And so puberty blockers block that first step of the train of the gonadotropins coming out of the brain. This gives prepubescent kids an opportunity to have some time before they hit puberty Um, because going through a puberty of a body that doesn't match your gender identity can be very distressing. So puberty blockers are just a way to get people the opportunity to like have a break before hitting puberty. Puberty blockers have long been used to treat children who go into early puberty. There are lots of conditions which may relate to a child hitting puberty at an age of like eight or nine when they're just not ready to go through that. So we have been or we, I'm not a medical provider, but the medical providers have been using puberty blockers with children for at least two decades. And there is no evidence that there's any negative consequences. And in fact, when the puberty blockers are stopped, puberty just resumes where it would have if the puberty blockers hadn't been used. Hormone replacement therapy is a little more advanced and typically refers to um, someone who predominantly makes estrogen taking testosterone to replace the estrogen with testosterone, vice versa with taking estrogen to replace testosterone. Typically, I believe this type of care is given to kids who are either um, post-puberty or typically tend to be like l- later adolescence um, and very commonly more used with adults. And then surgeries can be things like, and it's not just the transphobes always go for the like breast removal surgery or anything that alters the genital- genitals, but gender-affirming surgeries can be things like facial feminization surgery, Um, you can, there are surgeries to get like, um, things put in your chest to look more like boxy and traditionally masculine. Um, there are surgeries to get like your, uh, hair follicles on your face removed so that you don't grow facial hair. Like it's not just about the genitals and the like, you know, sensationalized surgeries like that. Like there are a lot of types of surgeries that help people feel that their body matches their gender identity. And those types of surgeries have been done on, you know, cis people for a long time. Like if you roll down to Beverly Hills and walk past the plastic surgeons offices, a lot of them are offering surgeries for cis people that they've been offered for many years to cis people that trans people sometimes also use to help their body match their gender identity. So, you can see that this is a convoluted big topic. Gender affirming care is a massive umbrella term. That covers a lot of things. I've only been talking about it for like seven minutes and I haven't even covered all, all of the things that are part of gender affirming care. So when people start screaming about bills that need to ban gender affirming care, we're talking about like massive, massive access to things here. So currently in the US, there are 20 states that have passed some sort of law or policy that ban access to gender fir- affirming care for people under the age of 18. Seven states are considering similar legislation, and I wouldn't be surprised if some form of them pass in the next year or so. With this many states banning this type of access to care, that means 30.9% of trans teens live in some sort of total ban of access to care for their their gender-affirming needs. For context, there are about 300,000 trans teenagers in the U.S., which is literally 1% of the U.S. population. So 30.9% can seem like a big number and it is a big it's a big portion of of that population. But in total, we are not talking about a massive population that's taking over. We're talking about 1% of the US population. I believe trans adults make up like another 1% if that of the US population. It's not a big number. And like I said earlier, with in returns to the the left-handed graph, we are probably going to see that number go up. We're probably going to see that number I don't know, I could estimate it hit over like five, maybe ten percent of the US population identifying as trans in some way. But that's not because people are being turned trans, it's because that amount of people already exist that are trans. They just have not been able to be open and identify that way because of the consequences. So thirty percent of trans teens now no longer have access to gender-affirming care because of these bans in these states. So let's get into some of these states that have these horrible bills on the books. South Dakota has banned access to all forms of gender-affirming care, including puberty blockers, which has led to kids who are currently on those types of, being, of, those types of medications being thrown off of them and having to drive other states to get care. There is an article in my sources that um, is about a trans girl named Willow. I believe it is the Weintraub article. And because South Dakota put this ban in, the family will now have to drive over 200 miles to get access to gender affirming care for their child. This is a child who is currently on puberty blockers, and because of this bill or this law being passed, they will no longer be able to access medication that they previously were taking. One of the things that gets thrown around a lot in terms of these bills is that it's, you know, about protecting parents' rights to... You know, take care of their children. That that kids are like getting tricked by teachers or drag queens or whatever boogeyman of the month into wanting to take puberty blockers. And so these bills, re- you know, protect the rights of parents to not allow their children to access gender affirming care. But the thing that always gets lost is what about the rights of parents who do want their child to act- have access to gender affirming care? The you know example of Willow's parents in this article is that they are desperate to have access to this treatment for their daughter and it's going to be a massive burden on them to have to drive this far to get her her medication. And and from all intents and purposes that I saw in the article, they're willing to do that for her, but it's still a big burden to them and it doesn't respect their right to, you know, seek this type of care for their child. So the argument that banning gender-affirming care or banning certain books from school or banning kids from playing certain sports or on certain sports teams are all about protecting parents' rights. It's just a truly bad faith argument and bad faith, like, support for these things because it ignores the other side, essentially, which is what about parents who want the right to have access to gender-affirming care for their kids? What about the parents who don't want their kids to die by suicide because they have uh gender dysphoria because they were never able to access gender affirming care or kids who are bullied because they're not able to like play sports on their team or they get outed because of these like sports bills that gets passed like huge group of parents' rights here not being respected and so we know that it's not really about parents' rights it's about controlling and subjugating trans people especially trans children of course South Dakota isn't the only state that's passed one of these bills surprise surprise Texas has passed quite a few of these anti-trans, anti-gender affirming care bills. In a true surprise, Texas actually has one of the largest trans communities in the country, like the largest um, gathering of trans people. I believe it's something like over 500,000 trans people live in Texas. Um, And they have passed legislation that bars children from getting treatment. Not only does it block new patients from getting care, so any new child seeking puberty blockers wouldn't be able to get them, it mandates that patients who currently are getting uh, gender-affirming care be weaned off of their medication. So the state is telling doctors, if you have been prescribing this this puberty blocker, this hormone replacement therapy to this person, you now have to wean them off, not because of any medical decision, but because of a policy. Texas also had a state policy um, where they mandated the investigation of parents of trans kids who were getting gender-affirming gender care for child abuse. And the I believe it was the Texas DA basically wrote this memo saying, if you take your kid to the doctor to get tra- gender-affirming care for them, we will consider you a suspect or you know a source of investigation for child abuse. Luckily, those orders have been tied up in court, and it looks like they're not going to get appealed. They're still waiting on the decision to come out. That is how intense Texas is going after this community that is highly represented in, in that like the majority of the the largest portion of trans people in this country live in Texas and again, what about the rights of the people who are already on these medications like you don't just wean someone off of medication because you say so right like that is a complicated medical process and especially when it is puberty blockers it's not just that now the kids are off the puberty blockers it's that once they stop taking those puberty blockers, they go into the puberty of the, the sex that was assigned to them at birth. So, if you have, like, a trans boy who's taken off of his puberty blockers, he'll start to go through a female puberty and have a period, whereas a trans girl who's taken off puberty blockers would go through a male, uh, male puberty. This is an incredibly distressing experience for someone who is experiencing that their gender identity does not match the sex assigned to them at birth. And that's the point of the puberty blockers is that you don't have to experience that if you're not ready or if you're going to make steps later to avoid having to go through that. Like the puberty blockers give you some time to breathe. So, being weaned off of them means that these kids are getting thrown into a puberty that doesn't match how they experience their gender identity and that they may not even be prepared for experiencing. I have had experiences in my clinical work where i have encountered adolescents who have gender dysphoria and when they went through puberty it was the most intense time of their lives in terms of their mental health these are kids that end up cutting themselves around their like sex characteristics these are kids that end up attempting suicide or being pretty chronically suicidal these are kids that are miserable Because they had to go through a puberty that doesn't match the way that they experience themselves in the world. There is actually some really interesting research out there that I've read before that demonstrates that gender dysphoria can be so overwhelming that it actually can sometimes mimic borderline personality disorder. That it's such intense dysphoria, such intense transitory, like, hatred of oneself because one's body does not match one's identity that it leads to things like self-harm and suicidality. It's not this is not just a silly little thing that we can just make kids stop taking these medications or, you know, prevent kids from having access to these things when they become adults. This can be life-changing and life-threatening for people. It is really serious to have access to gender affirming care. And I remember one time when I was I was working with a kiddo um who I was I had ultimately diagnosed with gender dysphoria. I was talking to my supervisor About it, And I was trying to explain to him like why I felt that this kiddo didn't meet criteria for personality disorder and why it should be gender dysphoria. And I I asked him to think about like, when's the last time did you consciously think about being a man? Like every morning, do you get up and look in the mirror and say like, I'm a man? Or do you walk through the world with people treating you like a man? And so you don't have to think about it. It is just the air you breathe. And he was like, yes, (laughs) it is. It's the air I breathe. And I said, for these kids it's not that way. They wake up and they look at themselves in the mirror and they say, I'm a man or I'm a woman or you know whatever my gender identity is. And then they go through the world and every interaction they have is invalidating that identity. It's telling them that they don't look that way. They don't look like they're a this name or a that name. They don't get their pronouns used. Their clothing is scrutinized. Their hair is scrutinized. Their makeup is scrutinized. If they wear makeup, like everything about them is scrutinized and given back to them by saying it does not match the way that you feel inside. And we don't believe you that that's really how you feel inside. Cis people, we don't realize how lucky we are that we get to wake up and not have to specifically make certain choices to let the world know that we have a certain gender identity. It is assumed of us. And when we restrict people from having access to gender-affirming care, we restrict them of having that experience where maybe their bodies can start to match the way that they identify their own gender and maybe they don't have to work as hard to convince the world around them that they are a certain gender. Gender affirming care lets people move through the world in a way that is more similar to how cis people move through the world. And not everyone is going to seek gender affirming care and you don't have to medically transition to be considered trans or non-binary or whatever identity you 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 know match onto. But gender affirming care is an avenue through which people can resolve some of that dysphoria or some of that distress if it doesn't quite meet the level of gender dysphoria. It is a way in which people can move through the world the way that cis people move through the world. So yeah, banning access to it can have some pretty intense consequences. Now, probably the worst example of these bills comes out of our favorite state, Florida. Florida has been on a tear, if you've been looking at the news at all. Florida's been quite on a tear about persecuting trans people, LGBTQ plus people, black people, Chinese people, like any people, Florida has been attacking. And their law um, that they passed banning gender-affirming care not only targeted people under the age of 18, which is what most of these bills have been about, but also targeted trans adults. And the Florida law, which was signed and passed into law, mandated that adults must sign an informed consent form to have access to gender-affirming care, must have a physician overseeing their transition, and must see that provider in person. And the law made it a crime to violate any of those restrictions. Now, at first glance, it may seem like, what's the big deal? That sounds good that someone should have access to a doctor and should sign an informed consent form. So let me knock those down for you one by one. Signing an informed consent form does not need to exist to access care. Now, you do need to give informed consent to participate in medical care, but it does not need to be a signed form. The, in terms of mental health, the ethics code says that as long as you have documented in some way that you received written or oral informed consent, then you are golden. This is the same with... Now, a lot of doctor's offices end up having you sign forms anyway. Anyone who's ever been a new patient in a doctor's office has signed 8,000 forms <laughs> when you go in and they hand you that little clipboard. So likely you you have... Sign some sort of informed consent to have medical care in general. This is adding an additional layer of saying you need to sign a separate form saying you have informed consent about your gender-affirming care, and it just presents a bureaucratic obstacle. It's not like the biggest horrible thing out of this bill. The other two provisions are the ones that are really bad, but it's just another way to kind of gum up the works and add an extra barrier to people who are needing gender-affirming care. The second provision that you require a physician to oversee their transition eliminated access to people who were receiving care from a nurse practitioner. Now, a nurse practitioner is a you know, type of medical provider. They are pretty much able to do everything that a medical doctor can do. I'm not super into like the different categories, but nurse practitioners can prescribe medication. They can do the exams. They can oversee care. Like They pretty much can do anything that a doctor can do, and they are licensed and credentialed to do that. This law that Florida passed meant that if you were seeing a nurse practitioner for your hormone replacement therapy or other type of gender affirming care, you were no longer allowed to receive care from that provider. And in fact, you would be considered a criminal if you received care from that provider. So what happened was the nurse practitioners in that state had to stop giving care to their trans clients. This is, well, this may be more a function of capitalism, but (laughs) unfortunately, what happens is there tends to be a lot more nurse practitioners than doctors because you can pay them less. And I believe it's like a little bit less school. I think ultimately it's not that much less, but you can pay a nurse practitioner less than you can pay a doctor. So a lot of healthcare companies end up over-relying on nurse practitioners and they have very few, you know, physicians or medical providers, medical doctors on their staffs. So now, like, and this was in one of the articles, it's in the Um, BD, Farrington, and Schoenbaum article from June 4th, uh, they talked about how some of these healthcare companies pretty much had like all nurse practitioners and like one physician kind of overseeing the clinic. And so now that one physician is the only one who can provide gender affirming care and all of the patients that were going to the nurse practitioners cannot get their care from those practitioners anymore. So, this creates a massive, massive inequality in access to gender-affirming care, because now a big chunk of the providers who were giving that can no longer give it. It is a crime in Florida to give it. The third one, which is about telehealth, is another way that just massively prevents people from getting access to care. Telehealth is here to stay, baby. Like, (laughs) I know it really popped off due to the pandemic, but it's here to stay. It's convenient. It's convenient for both the doctor and the patient. It can provide a lot more access to healthcare, Um, because you can, as long as you live in the same state, you know, you could be two hours away from your doctor, but still see them on telehealth. So, it's really good for people who are in rural areas. It's good for people who have maybe, you know, mobility restrictions or transportation restrictions, and so it's hard to travel into a doctor's office. It's good for busy people who may not have time to drive into the city to go to the doctor, but do have time to pop onto their HIPAA compliant Zoom call. Telehealth is convenient for a lot of people. And so, this law says, no longer can you have your telehealth appointment. You have to physically get yourself to the doctor's office. And because gender-affirming care is not always present in every clinic, people in Florida, you know, may live in one city, but their, their gender-affirming care provider lives three, four, or five cities away. So this is a big burden to people to get them to come into the office. And then you're not even guaranteed an appointment when you come into the office because it has to be a physician and the nurse practitioners can no longer provide this care. They are following almost the exact same playbook they used to make abortion inaccessible in a lot of these states. Um, in a lot of the abortion bills before the kind of overthrow of Roe v. Wade was that uh, they would say you had to have a physician on site at your abortion clinic that had hospital attending privileges, which is incredibly difficult to get, and so it makes it almost impossible for an abortion clinic to stay open. They would mandate that you had to have your hallways be wide enough to have a hospital gurney in which was a big barrier for a lot of these these clinics that are like community clinics and in no way even need to be that size but then you know can't accommodate those restrictions so might have had to close. They would do a lot of these things where it's like on the surface it sounds good like yes, of course someone should have a physician overseeing their their gender transition or their gender affirming care. It looks good from the outside, but the inside the reality of it of it is it severely limits access to care. But Florida didn't just stop there. They passed a second law that allows doctors and pharmacists to refuse treatment to trans people. So, you might be able to find yourself a physician in the state of Florida that will provide you gender-affirming care. They write you a prescription to get testosterone or estrogen at the pharmacy and you scoot your little boot on down to the pharmacy and the pharmacist says, I will not give you your medication because I don't think that you should have access to it. And you you cannot get access to your hormones because the pharmacist has decided that they need to take a stand against the trans panic. This is exactly the same playbook they used about abortion. These right-wing lunatics <laughs> in, in the Congress or in, in these state legislatures, they allowed pharmacists to say, I refuse to give you your pills if they were using the, the pill method of getting an abortion. Now, you all know from my abortion episode that I love to say abortion is healthcare because it is gender-affirming care is healthcare as well. And so what these states are doing is they are severely limiting access to healthcare for people who need it. And it's not just that people need gender-affirming care to have their gender be affirmed, but it can be the difference between life or death. People who, do not, who are trans or non-conforming in some way who do not have access to gender-affirming care have increased risks of depression anxiety, increased risks of self-harm, including things like cutting, and increased risk of suicidality. In a recent survey, 40% of trans people have attempted suicide at some point in their life. This is compared to the general U.S. population where only 5% have attempted suicide at some point in their life. So even though the trans community is small, makes up about probably 1 to 2% of the U.S. population, 40% of the community has attempted suicide at some point in their life far outpacing the general population in the US. Not having access to gender-affirming care can be life-threatening. So when you see these bills getting passed and you see this discourse being had, it's not just about people who are being transphobic or about culture war stuff. It is about lives. It's about access to medical care. It's about quality of life. And it's about living a life where you're not constantly being persecuted or discriminated against. I know that this was a long episode and there was a lot to cover and there's probably still more left to cover that I didn't have time to put into this episode, but I think that it is important to have some of this stuff explained because when we go on social media and we see short tweets or TikToks or Facebook posts about this stuff, it's sensationalized. It's some of the worst opinions I've ever seen in my life on social media and it's often not the whole story. And so even if you're someone who at the outset of this episode, you know, maybe didn't believe in some of the transphobic things that have come out of this trans panic and didn't think that, um, you know, trans people are like inherently pedophiles, but maybe you didn't know the whole picture because all that you're seeing is the very, very aggressively loud minority of people who believe these things. And so it's easy for, you know, regular people who aren't chronically online or aren't like chronically steeped in research like some of us. It's very easy to get the takeaway from this being like, oh, there seems to be two sides of the story, so the middle ground must be something like, I guess, trans people shouldn't be able to go into any bathroom or compete in any type of sports. Like maybe there should be some rules around this because it seems like there's all these horror stories of things going wrong. And the reality is, is that those those things that transphobic people say are not true. There may be occasional circumstances where trans a trans person has committed some sort of offense or some sort of crime. But guess what? Cis people commit a lot of crimes too, right? A lot of sex sex offenders are cisgender people, right? It's not about the gender identity that's contributing to these things. There's nothing about gender identity that makes you deviant. There are other factors that can contribute to engaging in certain behaviors, but that's not what this podcast about is about. What this episode is about is just helping to debunk some of this stuff and to show how In all of the rhetoric and all of the screaming that transphobic people do online about parents' rights and women's sports and yada, 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 there's not a lot of truth. And the reality of it is, is that this constant screaming from this tiny majority is having an impact on people's lives. And it's drowning out the reality of trans people. Trans people are people. They have jobs. They go about their lives. They have pets. They do silly things on the internet just like cis people. And so if I can have anything put out there that is counter to the just horrific screeching uh, against trans people, then I want to do it. And I want to do it in a way that provides you with a little bit of information. So I hope you learned something from this episode. And if you find yourself in a fight with someone about gender-affirming care, you'll have a little bit of information to arm yourself with and at least be able to say Leah Thomas, although a wonderful athlete, did not transition to (laughs) dominate women's sports. She has worked her whole life to be a good swimmer and she's the best swimmer that she can be. And it has nothing to do with her gender identity or her transitioning. It has to do with her being a good swimmer. So thank you as always for listening all the way through to the end and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Just a little button to pin on the end of this episode. If you or someone you love is trans or questioning or needing support around gender identity, um, I highly encourage you to check out the Trans Lifeline. They have uh, operators standing by who can talk with anyone about gender identity, about getting access to resources. The Trans Lifeline is put in the episode notes for this show and every show. Um, And you can also check out the resources page on my website if you need more access to things like uh, mental health care or uh, specifically resources for LGBTQ plus people. So take care of yourself. This is a tough time out there. This is a tough topic. Um, And if you or anyone you love needs that extra care, please check out the Trans Lifeline.